You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. In, in seminary, in Bible school, right, so you take a class, and, and I, I didn't go to seminary, so this is why I, I've had to study this on my own. There's a class called homiletics, and what homiletics is, is it's teaching you how to preach, that's the concept of homiletics, is they give you a text from scripture and they go, find the meaning of what that text is, and then present it in a way that is winsome and attractive and gets the point across in a way that people can understand, right? That's the science of homiletics, and they teach you that in Bible school, all those kinds of things. And one of the things that they include in teaching homiletics how to preach effectively is they say, don't use um, metaphors, don't use pictures, don't use analogies that are too specific specific like understand your audience right that not everybody in the audience may be a sports fan so don't always use sports analogies because not everybody's going to get those things but there's another concept that sort of contradicts that one as well which makes it a bit confusing the other concept is preach what you know right so here's the deal i don't know a whole lot of other things but i know when march rolls around college basketball is the biggest thing on the planet at least in our house it's so fun and it's such this huge great picture i believe believe it or not of the spiritual life man march madness is so fun because what you have is this big tournament of 64 now 68 teams which is ridiculous but but like you have this big bracket board right of teams on each side. And, and the way that they seed this, and this always seemed unfair to me, right? But like the 15th seed will play the second seed, right? And the 16th seed will play the first seed. And I'm like, just getting into the tournament is ridiculous. Like the poor little 16th seed, how are they going to beat the number one team? That doesn't make sense to me. But regardless, fair or not, that's how it's set up. But what's so great about college basketball, and this is why people love college sports so much more than professional sports in a lot of circumstances, specifically in basketball, is because there's no series. It's not the best of three or the best of five. It's one and done. The beauty of that is you could have the top best team who's been undefeated their entire season and some little podunk, nothing, no nothing Christian university from Texas can knock off the number one or the number two seed and, and all of a sudden have this David and Goliath victory and everybody goes nuts in the house and you could hear them from across the room and across the house, everybody's yelling and cheering and it's just fun to see the little guy defeat the big guy, right? And, and maybe that's not true. Maybe your favorite team got beat yesterday, right? Like maybe, maybe you were rooting for Ohio State or maybe you're rooting for Texas for some reason and they got beat early in the tournament. But there is a truth here that I think is important for us to know whether you are into sports or not, whether you even get that analogy or have ever watched a March Madness game or not. Here's the truth that I think we need to meditate on this morning. And it's that the greatest spiritual experiences that we may have, the things that put us at the top, that give us these mountaintop experiences, that make us what would seem to be the number one seed, right? The one who's just experienced these great things. Very often, the greatest spiritual experiences we may have will often be accompanied by God's greatest humilities, our greatest spiritual experiences will very often be combined with or followed up with some of God's greatest humilities for a very specific person, a very specific reason. 
That is, God desires us to worship him in spirit and truth, but he desires us to worship him with humility. With humility. That's why I think we like seeing little guys beat the big guys. The big guys walk in, and even though they may not say it, they sort of have this swagger, like they kind of got it figured out. Yeah, we're 26 and 0, and little podunk whatever university from, from no-nothing town America, yeah, they made it into the tournament. Good for them. Oh, that's sweet. Their first tournament game ever. And what happens is they overlook that little guy. And what we sort of sometimes sadistically, some, sometimes righteously enjoy watching is that big guy just gets slaughtered. And you just look at their faces like, what the heck happened? We just got run over by a freight train. Like, we didn't expect that to happen. And we're like, yeah, that's right. You looked over the little guy. And I think oftentimes it's because we, we, we equate ourselves with the little guy. We understand that in the story of scripture, we're never the victor. We, we've sort of understood and learned that reading through scripture, that, that when we see the story that matches someone who's great and mighty and someone who's weak and lowly, we understand for ourselves that we're the weak and lowly ones. We're never the, the, the big victorious person, right? And so I think that, that we understand that even as you look through the Old Testament, you could just simply look through the stories of the Old Testament. Job, right? He was a man who was righteous before God. He would appear to have had it figured out in some way. He was blessed. He was a man after he was pursuing the Lord. He was praying for his kids. And then the Lord brings this incredibly humbling experience, taking everything away from him to test him to see if he's going to curse the Lord. And yet he doesn't. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's a great example of this. Guy who would seem to be just got it figured out. He's at the top. And yet the Lord allows this trial to come into his life. This humility to test him. You could look throughout the rest of the Old Testament. David's an example of this, right? David's an example. Abraham's an example. And here in our text today, the Apostle Paul is not just an example of this, but he speaks to this very point explicitly. Turn in your, in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we see in the Apostle Paul, I read a lot, of, I read a, I read a lot period, and I listen to a lot of sermons and, and, and scholars and theologians. And something that can often happen is that in our pursuit of how to share the gospel, how to be examples of Christian love and faith, we look into the scriptures and we start to attach ourselves to those in scripture who are either relatable or who we desire to copy and be like. The Apostle Paul is like that within the academic world. Theologically, the Apostle Paul is basically at the top in terms of biblical theology. And many people spend their time just studying Paul, and it's Paul this and Paul that, and the Apostle Paul said this, and St. Paul said that. Like that's, that's just sort of what happens a lot of times. But what I think is more important than seeing the heights of what Paul accomplishes in his letters and what he teaches us, it's seeing his example of humility that he claims for himself in all that the Lord does. And so we're going to see exactly what we said a little bit earlier, that oftentimes the greatest spiritual experiences are accompanied by God's greatest humilities. So take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. And when he says that he boasts, he's being facetious. He's not really bragging in any sense of the word in terms of pride, but he's laying out what is true about his life 
And he's laying out what he would claim to be the most important things in his life. So he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord saying he's going to explain his experiences of visions and revelations that the Lord has given to him. Verse 2, I know a man, speaking of himself, in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul is basically explaining to the Corinthians that 14 years ago he had an experience where somehow, whether it was actually physically or just in his spirit, he was brought up into the heavenlies, as we would call it. And Paul says, God allowed me to see a vision of things in heaven that I can't rightfully speak out to you. I can't say those things. But here's, here, here's his point, is that God has given me spiritual experiences that in all truth cannot be matched by anybody or anything else here on earth. And then he continues in verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses, Paul draws the distinction here, and he goes, I've had this amazing spiritual experience, but that's not what I'm going to brag about. I'll tell you, it happened. It's true. He goes, I don't know how it happened, but here's what took place. I got to go up to heaven. But, but you see how Paul makes a disconnect where he's like, it's almost like it wasn't even me. Almost like I'm not even worthy to have that experience, and yet God allowed me to see things so much so that I'm not going to even brag about that man because that man 14 years ago, whether it's me or not, I don't deserve to be recognized in that position. Rather, he says, if I'm going to boast about anything on my behalf that I'm going to claim for myself, he says, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Humility. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, mark this, to keep me from being conceited. You see the connection? Paul had this experience this spiritual experience, this vision, this revelation from God, seeing things that he says lawfully, rightfully, I can't even tell you about them. As in, God says, don't repeat these things, the things that you've seen. Now, that's not a unique experience of just the Apostle Paul. Others were given similar visions. Daniel was shown things in the scripture that God told him, seal up the things that you saw. They're not ready for it yet. Don't say the things that you saw in heaven. That's for another time, Daniel. And yet, the Apostle John was given a vision of heaven in the revelation of Jesus, and he was told to write these things down so that the church can be encouraged at what you see. But here Paul falls into that Daniel category where God says they're not ready yet. Don't, don't tell them what you've seen. And, and so Paul has had this spiritual experience that would put him at this top level. Again, spiritually at that point, he's a number one seed. He's the top. Nobody else has experienced anything like he has experienced at this point. But he says again in verse 7, So to keep me from being conceited, 
Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, plenty of ink has been spilled, plenty of words have been spoken about trying to postulate what that thorn was. Was it the fact that he had bad eyes? Did he have some other disease? Or was it a person that kept bugging him? Really, it doesn't matter. The point of of what Paul is sharing and saying is that God was humbling me for a very specific purpose. Because I had these great spiritual experiences, God also came behind that and said, I'm gonna humble you, Paul, to keep you from being conceited, right? And so take a look at how he finishes this, and this becomes even more important than the experience that he's had or the thorn that he's experiencing. Verse eight says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, meaning the thorn, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am, mark this word, content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Spiritual experiences are often accompanied by seasons of humility, seasons of of trial, seasons of of, um, temptation even, When you've had these great experiences, you can see it in Jesus' life, you can see it in the lives of the apostles, you can see it in the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, that when they've had these great spiritual experiences and revelations from God, when God has literally spoken to them, immediately following that, very often you see them going through a trial of some kind, something that brings them into a season of humility. And the apostle Paul would seem to put this season of humility even though he was praying, Lord, it doesn't feel good. Lord, this isn't a fun situation. Here I was 14 years ago seeing the heights of heaven and and I have these revelations from you and you've been faithful. I've I've seen you through these years, how how you've been faithful to me. He's just gone about bragging about all the things that he's accomplished in his ministry and gives glory to God for those things. And yet, Lord, here's this. I get get it. I know. I'm I'm humble. I'm humble, Lord. Take it away. Isn't it enough that that you've, you've... put me through all these experiences. I've been in the, in, in the sea for a day and a night. I, I've been bitten by a snake and I lived. I've had people, you know, waylay me and, and, and rob me on the road. I've had people beat me with sticks a bunch of times. I've had people throw rocks at me. Like, like isn't that enough, Lord? And yet, because it's such a great and powerful thing to see God for who he is, to experience the spiritual heights that God will reveal to us if we devote ourselves to him, God also brings about seasons of humility, a thorn in Paul's flesh that even though he asked God to remove it, God said, actually, you need to have that there so that you don't become conceited, so that you don't become arrogant, so that, it, you, so that you and your little human brain don't get it all twisted up and think, I was the cause of that spiritual experience. My devotion brought me into the heights of spiritual bliss. God says that so that you don't think it has anything to do with you, so that you don't get conceited, 
I'm going to give you this thorn to keep you humble and so that you understand that my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need anything more than my grace, God tells him, and us. See, we live in a world where we're consumed with the idea that we need more of something. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that is your thing, I need more of that thing. It's what makes me feel good. It's what makes me feel accomplished. It's what makes me feel important. It's what makes me feel loved or, or whatever the case might be. And, and we could go through a litany of things, a list of things to say, here's all the things that people are consumed with thinking they need more of. Some of the top ones, just because everybody experiences this at some point in their life, you know, money. We think we need more money because more money makes life easier, right? Where I can buy more things that I want. I can pay for things that I don't have, all those kinds of things. And yet the people with the most money in the world kind of when they're truthful and honest about it, they're like echoing all the hip-hop stars, right? More money, more problems, right? They're talking about things, they're like, like the more money, they're thinking back to simpler times going, actually, when we didn't have as much money and it was just about the purpose of our life, you know, our relationships and our friendships and those kinds of things, the money was sort of this far-off, like, abstract idea that, like, yeah, it'd be nice, but it wasn't the purpose, Oftentimes people think they want more money. Oftentimes people think they're going to be satisfied or fulfilled in a relationship. This relationship didn't work out, I'm going to move on to the next one. That relationship didn't work out, I'm going to move on to the next one. And so because I haven't been fulfilled yet, I'm going to keep looking for that relationship to fulfill me. And yet what they find is that, is that you see people who've gone through multiple relationships and you ask them, well, why didn't that one work out? And why didn't that one work out? And it's always about someone else. It's always about someone else's problem when eventually they're going to have to look in the mirror and go, you know, it's not them, it's me. I'm the one with the problem. I'm the one who's not being satisfied by this relationship. And what the Lord says is that my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. My grace will satisfy you. And he says it's because my power is made perfect in weakness. When we surrender ourselves, you know, there's, there's a big difference between faith and belief. There's a huge difference between faith and belief. Believing something can be purely academic. You could read the scriptures, you could read history, you could look at the accounts of the apostles, you could look at the accounts of the prophets and how Jesus fulfilled those accounts and those prophecies and go, academically, I get it, Christianity makes more sense than any of the other world religions. Jesus Christ is a unique figure. He's different than any other religious figure in the world. Christianity, as we understand it from the scripture, is entirely different and unique. I get that. Like, I can academically process that, and I can believe that. But there's a difference between believing in something and having faith in something. Having faith in something requires that we surrender ourselves to it. It requires that we humble ourselves and say, this isn't about me, this is about you. Our belief doesn't necessarily save us. Our faith is what saves us. Our faith in who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. Our faith, our surrendering to God's purpose for our life. That's why God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. God's effect on your life will only begin to happen when you place your faith in him, when you surrender yourself to him and his authority. 
You could believe in him all the live long day and not have any effect of God's grace in your life because you simply believe, but you don't have faith. The moment you have faith, you surrender yourself to him and find completeness in him, that's when you start seeing God working in your life. When you pursue and determine to be closer to Jesus than anyone else, when you surrender yourself to him, there's not only these seasons of humility that will come, but there will also be seasons of what feels like isolation and aloneness. Seasons of waiting upon the Lord. Paul was one who experienced these things. Jesus was one who experienced these things. You and I will experience those seasons of loneliness when we pursue holiness, when we pursue what is right and good and true in the Lord. Why? Because we live in a world that denies the truth of who Jesus is. You stop and think about why we get together as the body of Christ, as the church. This can't get preached enough. It's because we need each other to encourage one another to keep living in the faith, to keep surrendering to Jesus, to keep being reminded that it's not our own strength that's going to pull us through. It's not some political cause that's going to pull us through. It's not some program with 10 steps to a better life that's going to pull us through. It's not any type of worldly experience or possession that's going to pull us through. It's our faith that is going to pull us through. And so that's why the body of Christ is called together. And it says is knit together so that where one person is having faith and is strong in their faith and another person is weak, the weak one gets to be built up by the strong one. The person who's struggling gets to be be encouraged by those who are uh, having success in their life. The one who has need of something is provided for by the one who has plenty. This is what we are called to be as the church. Paul continues on in in, in verse 9. And he says, Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The indication here is that if I boast in anything other than my weaknesses, the power of Christ will not rest upon me. It's only when I surrender myself, when I confess my weaknesses, when I admit that I can't do it on my own, when I cry out to the Lord, that's when the power of Christ, Paul says, rests upon us. How do we see great things being done in in the world for Christ? People who are on mission, people who are sharing the gospel with people. Is it because that they've gone gone to some class and learned how to share those things, learned how to be powerful in those things in the Lord, learned more theology than everybody else? No, it's actually when someone humbles themselves in their faith to the Lord that the spirit of Jesus ascends upon them, descends upon them, and, and empowers them to do the things that he has called them to do. Now, last point for the day, and I think probably the, the, the culmination of all of this, understanding this humility, is this in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, not for any other reason, but for the sake of Christ then, Paul would say, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. I want to focus in on the word content this morning. To be content, by definition, means to be satisfied. Satisfied in that sense of, I haven't eaten too much, I'm not full and, and, and hurting, and I haven't eaten too little to where I'm still hungry, I'm just right. Goldilocks, I'm just right. I'm satisfied, I don't need more, I, I don't have any other need, it's been fulfilled. So to be satisfied, another point of definition is a state of peaceful happiness. This is what it means to be content. And Paul says, for the sake of Christ, because of Jesus, I am content. I'm satisfied. I am in a state of peaceful happiness. Now, among other references in scripture, there are two primary references to contentedness that I want you to be aware of. The first is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. 1 Timothy 6, 8. We won't turn there right now, but look at it later. And the reference is that, is, is that Paul tells Timothy, with food and clothing, we will be content. Right? With food and clothing, we will be content. Well, wait a minute. He didn't say anything about a house. He didn't say anything about square footage. He didn't say anything about how the house is supposed to be remodeled or what it's supposed to look like. No, Paul just says, with, hey, Timothy, when you're out on mission for Jesus, when you're out proclaiming the gospel, the only thing you really have need of and all that you should truly be satisfied in is that your belly's full and that your body's covered. That's it. With food and clothing, these things will be content. Yeah, but I need a car to get from here to there. Hey, plenty of people in plenty of cultures and plenty of places in the world have survived without a car. Yeah, but that makes it hard. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Be humble about that. Take joy in Jesus, knowing that he's gonna provide what you need if you're humble. His strength will be upon you if you're humble. And so that's the first reference. And, and, and you say, okay, food and clothing, even, even if that goes against my sort of mentality of I need a car, I need a house, I need other things that, that, are, that make my life easy or nice or comfortable, okay, I can get down with the food and clothing part. Because at a very basic level, I understand that. Food and clothing, I have need of those things. And, and Paul tells Timothy, with those things, we should be content. Perhaps it's a bit limiting on the things that I would like to have, but I get that. Okay, food and clothing, I'll be content. See, because the root of it, I could say, amen, Lord, you're providing for me. I am being provided for in a way that makes me comfortable. I got food in my stomach. I got clothes on my back. And even at the basis level, right, like I can deal with that because it's about me and my comfort. But I want you to take a look at this, uh, what Paul says in this other reference to contentedness that absolutely flies in the face of what we consider to be good and right in our world today. Paul says he is satisfied. He is in a place of peaceful happiness in regard to these experiences. In verse 10 again, he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content, I'm satisfied with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I've got a list of things from Scripture that, that I, I would love to um, write up in a little book or put on a billboard of some kind and go, hey, come be a Christian and, and, and experience weakness and insults and persecutions and calamities. These sections of Scriptures are horrible advertising campaigns. 
This is not the way to convince someone to join in with the mission of Jesus. Paul, don't you get it? We need to tell them that we've got coffee and donuts. We need to tell them that we have basically Disneyland in a warehouse for their kids to come experience so that the parents can be told how great they are or at the very least, here's the five steps to a successful life if you believe upon Jesus and give us all your money. That's how you get people to join a church. That's how you get people to join a movement is if they're provided for and are made to feel comfortable and content and blissfully happy about their circumstances. And yet Paul says the very exact opposite thing. And I hope you see the connection. I hope you, make, you, you connect the dots here. Paul's saying, I've had these incredible spiritual experiences the things that everyone really wants to experience when they place their faith upon Jesus, they, they really do want to see the Lord. They want to see him as he is. They want to be moved spiritually. They want to grow into holiness. That's what they want to see. But when God does those things, when he gives you those experiences, he also brings along these, these humbling experiences, things that are uncomfortable. And Paul would seem to say that if you want one, you need to expect to have the other. And not only expect to have it, but be satisfied that God is providing with you both of those experiences. The spiritual high, right? But also the humility. And he says that I'm content with these things. Weakness. The epitome of faith is surrender. And to surrender is to be weak. And that's what Paul says. I'm willing, I'm content, I'm happy to be in a position of weakness. Boy, that's, that's opposite of our culture. We're told that we need to be the strongest we can be. We're told that we need to be the smartest, the fittest, the, the, the whatever, the most successful. Like that's our culture, bigger, better, stronger, faster, all these kinds of things. That's our culture is to say we need to be strong. And you see it in all kinds, you know, it's built into the, to the male DNA and you know, sort of uh, thought process uh, for men. But, but in our culture also, that's happened with women as well. Like, no, women, you need to be strong. Was it Helen Reddy, I am woman, hear me roar, or something like that from the 70s? What a disgrace. But, but, and, and what a beautiful singer, but like, what a disgrace. I am woman, hear me roar. I can, I can bring home the bacon and I can fry it up in a pan, right? I don't need men around. I can do it all. If you didn't need to have men around the species wouldn't propagate itself. Different, different conversation. We'll talk about that later. But the whole idea of like, I'm a woman, I'm strong, I don't need anybody else, that flies in the face of what God created us as men and women for, to have union and unity, to express in the physical nature of, of, of man and woman the spiritual reality of Jesus and his church. It's in that issue of weakness and submission that we find ourselves being attuned to what Jesus has created us for. Insults, listen, to be like Jesus is to endure insults, even to the point of hatred. If you want to be like Jesus and pursue his holiness, get ready, you're gonna be insulted. People are gonna say bad things about you. Yeah, but you're a hypocrite. I knew you when. I was with you when you did that thing. Yeah, I know, I know. But, but here's the thing. I'm submitting myself to Jesus. I'm confessing and repenting those things and I'm having those things forgiven moment by moment, day by day. 
but be ready and be content to know that if you're being insulted for the sake of Jesus, now listen, contextualize that. Make sure we understand that. Not just being weak or insulted or going through hardships in a general sense, but Paul says, for the sake of Christ. If you're being insulted because you stop and pray before your meal at a restaurant, amen, you're in good company. Be content with that. If you're a young person who goes, I'm not going to go see that movie, I'm not going to listen to that music, I'm not going to say those words, and you get made fun of or insulted because of that, amen, you're in good company. Be content and satisfied that for the sake of Jesus, people are treating you differently. Why? It's because they recognize that you're not like them. And truthfully, in all honesty, the reason people pick on weak people or make fun of weak people or insult weak people is because they're, they're uncomfortable with themselves. They're not confident in who they are. They have to find themselves picking on someone else. And most often, what happens is if they see someone who stands up for their beliefs and their faith, they're actually inwardly jealous of that person. Thinking, I wish I had that kind of guts. I wish I was that content with myself to have those kinds of convictions. And so for the sake of Christ, we're going to experience weakness, which is the epitome of surrender. We're going to experience insults, hardship. You have to understand that the life of Christ is hard. Ministry is hard. Disciplining our bodies and our minds and our hearts is hard. Walking with Jesus is not easy. Again, that's not an advertising slogan that you're going to hear for the church. It's going to be simply, hey, believe it and receive it. And you believe in Jesus, don't worry about everything else. Just believe in Jesus and everything will be made right. Listen, I think we do a disservice to people and why we see so many people sort of bounce in and out of church is because they weren't given the truth of the gospel, which is believe upon Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. The rest of your earthly life may stink. But what you have that nobody else has is the promise of eternity with Jesus. You may not be able to see it right now. You may not be able to feel it right now. But on the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, how thankful you're going to be that God called you to that life of service, that life of submission, those hard things that you experienced. Because in that day, when you stand before the Lord and he rewards you for your faithfulness, you're going to say, Lord, me? I wasn't faithful. I doubted every other day. I was willing to give up every single Sunday. And yet somehow, by your grace... I made it through, and yet he's going to reward you for saying, I'll, I'll trust you, Lord. I'll be content in the things you've called me to. Persecution, the removal of our freedoms because of Jesus. Buckle up, it's coming. I don't have anything else to say about that. Calamity, danger. Maybe, that, maybe that's the straw that breaks the camel's back for you. I can deal with all the, 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 the verbal things. I can deal with the persecution. I can deal with freedoms being taken away. I can deal with somebody insulting me. That's not the thing. What do you mean danger? You mean like my life actually being in danger because of Jesus? Yeah, that's what the Apostle Paul would say. Is that life, his life was in danger frequently, constantly even. And maybe you say, nope, not me. That's where I draw the line. And maybe you've heard this phrase, the, 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 the same excuse I've heard many times from people. The God I believe in wouldn't do that to someone who he loves. And yet what we have here is an example of a love that is so great that God wouldn't allow us to do something that will break fellowship with him. I'm going to give you spiritual experiences. You're going to see the height of heights, but I'm also going to give you some lows in your life. 
so that you continue to trust me so that my strength can be perfected in your weakness so that you can see that I'm strong regardless of the circumstances. I give you the highs, but in the lows, I'm with you there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. The God I believe in, that's an interesting concept. It's a very Western concept. The God I believe in. One of the things that we have to take root in and, and, and hold on to with, with every truth that would seem to even at times contradict themselves or simply be hard to understand is that there is one God. There is one Lord. There is one Savior. The Bible makes it very clear that there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus. That's it. Your good works aren't going to save you. Your successes in life aren't going to save you. Your bank account's not going to save you. Your reputation's not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is crying out to Jesus. That's it. The question for us to consider then is in our life and the experiences that the Lord has given to us, do we find ourselves to be content or do we find ourselves to be dissatisfied? Are we constantly searching for something more? Are we constantly looking for ways to please ourselves? Or have we come to a point in life where we discipline ourselves, train ourselves, allow ourselves even to be content and say, Lord, whatever you have brought, however I see that in, in light of this world and my circumstances, whether it seems good or seems bad, I'm content in the things that you bring to me because I've surrendered myself to you. And Jesus, when you're Lord, when you're my master, you simply give me the things that I have need of. And if I need a spiritual experience that puts me on a high and I have that, it's because you, I needed that. You needed me to see something glorious. But if I also go through a season where I'm simply being humbled and life seems to stink, it's because I needed that as well. And I'll be content in those things.